When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the Dom Harvey Podcast. This is the Generate KiwiSaver Scheme Summer Series, Volume 3. Thanks for downloading and choosing to listen to this very special Best Of compilation. And a special welcome to any brand new listeners. Coming up on this episode, excerpts from a heap of different guests who appeared on the podcast in 2023. So ahead of you is not just one guest, but about 15 absolute legends. The hope is that if some of the snippets ahead of you pique your interest, you'll make a note and go back and listen to the full episode sometime if you're yet to do so. And to make things extra convenient... In the podcast description, I have the names and the order of all the guests in this episode and the time their portion starts, so you can listen to them from start to finish, or just listen to whoever you choose. Up to you. Just prior to cracking into it, special thanks to the sponsor of the summer series, the Generate KiwiSaver Scheme. One of your resolutions for 2024 should be to take a more active interest in your KiwiSaver. There's a saying I really love, which you can apply to most things in life actually, hard choice, easy life, easy choice, hard life. And with money, the easy choice is to spend all your money now and then have a hard life when you retire. The harder choice is to be more disciplined now and put as much of your money as you can away so life can be easy when you retire. I am a massive fan of the Generate team and I cannot speak highly enough about the job they do for their clients. Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of chart-topping long-term performance. If you want to make sure you're making the most of your KiwiSaver account, talk to an advisor. Head to generatekiwisaver.co.nz forward slash get advice. A copy of their product disclosure statement can be found there too. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited. And of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Okay, let's get into it. The Generate KiwiSaver Scheme Summer Series. Meet Penny Taylor. She's a mum of two from Palmerston North who woke up feeling unwell on a Monday morning and by the end of the day was almost killed by meningococcal. So they ventilated me, put me into an, a coma, um, sort of said to my mum and dad and everyone that I would, they're protecting 48 to 72 hours. And that's it. People that need to come and say goodbye need to come up. Oh, so you were, you were basically on life support. Yeah. Um, oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you, you don't remember any of this, though, no, right? No, none of it at all. I have no idea what the family, what everyone else went through. I can ima- only imagine. That's um, harrowing. Yeah. That's harrowing. Yeah. Uh, um, just you just just pausing pausing here before we move on. It's such a – I mean, there, there, there's well, – spoiler alert, you survived. I you, did. You're here now <laughs> on the po- – there's so much to be thankful for, like the, I don't know, the hunch or the intuition or whatever it was from your ex to like get in touch with your mum. Like there's so much that did go right. Yeah. Uh, other, otherwise you would have just 
died there in bed, presumably. I would have, yeah. A couple of hours later. A couple of hours later, yeah. 100% they said that 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 would have been the end. Um, I would have been found. Because you hear about those stories, don't you, with people that have contracted meningococcal and they've woken they haven't woken the next day, um, gone to bed thinking it's a cold or a flu and not woken up. Yeah. Um, and I think that was the difference with me is that I didn't have any of those other symptoms. So all the other ones that they say is like, you know, the lights, you know, your eyes are painful with looking at light, um, the headaches, the runny nose, all those fever type things. I never had that. Mm. I just had the vomiting. That was it. Yeah. Now, how, how do you how do you catch at it? How can you avoid it? So everyone carries it. So everyone has it in the back of their throat. And it's just – so you could be a carrier and never pass it on um, and never get sick yourself. Or you could be a carrier and pass it on. And so saliva-based, obviously, with being in the back of your throat and um, – it can be as simple as picking up someone else's cup or sharing a drink and you have left your saliva on there with the um, disease and I've picked it up and it's taken over my body. It can be as easy as that. Young girls with lip gloss sharing that. Um, and that's why it was so um, heavy in the young kids, like little preschool children because they put everything in their mouths mm. <laughs> so it takes over yeah, all the yeah, time yeah, yeah. and then also teenagers in university hostels mm. so for me to be 36 was a little bit out of the box penny taylor on the generate summer series next up former all black coach john hart he came on the podcast and he opened up about the fallout after him and his side failed to win the world cup in 1999 then the depression that he spiraled into in the aftermath Chris, God bless him, said to me, Dad, Holmes DG starting in the Auckland Cup, in the New Zealand Trotting Cup tomorrow in Addington, why don't we go down? And I thought, well, maybe that's a good thing to do, get out and, you know. And so the four of us went down to watch Holmes DG, who was fantastic. Uh, I love horses, so I had a lot. I've had a lot of fun in my mm. life with horses, and he, was, he won 13 group once. He was just super horse. Mm. And he was the favourite to win the uh, New Zealand Cup, a race I'd never won. So we went down there. It's the worst decision I ever made in my life. It's a day that I will regret for the rest of my life, and I'll never forget the day because mm. it was it was horrible. Um, it's quite interesting, guys, people just abusing you. Um, you know, so you're in the, the birdcage area? Right, and- just in the public area, walking around, whatever. Right. Woman, Why, t- totally different attitude. Woman... Uh, empathised, um, came up to me and congratulated me on my career. Um, men just, uh, you know, there was just this, and I had this awful, the most terrible thing that ever happened to me. I went to the toilet and I'm in there and this guy comes up to me and said, you're a such and such, and the words I can't pronounce on yours, yours no, but it was the worst words you could hear, and he just spat on my face. And I stood there and I said, I can't do it. What can I do? You know, I just... And that memory will never leave me, and that was what's, what's, that was that was horrible. And um, then we go out, and the, the horse, the crowd are throwing beer cans at the horse when he goes out on the track. I sort of I look back and I think the poor horse didn't know I'd lost the World Cup. I mean, he, he sort of, he you know, I mean they're, they're, they're both alarmingly despicable acts, but 
in, in some way, and I should. I, I feel more sorry for the horse. Like, yeah, like, I did too. I mean, I feel, I feel I feel bloody sorry for you as well. I mean, no, uh, no, no. I'm yeah, not looking for sorrow. No, <laughs> no, no. But I mean, uh, yeah, I'm sorry you went through that. Like, they're, they're, I think there's a f- there's a few shameful points in New Zealand sporting history, and the, the way um the way you're treated, I'd say that's number one. Stephen Donald being sent a bullet in the post yeah. after a bet. I mean, it's yeah. just it's it's gross. Yeah, that so was. So, yeah. so, what was the age of the guy in the bathroom? Oh, what he do you was, reckon? Yeah, I don't know. I can't. I can. I could see his face at the time. I've lost it now. Thank God. Um, but it was just one of those horrible moments. You just don't think, "What have I done?" You know, I've done my best. I've uh, I've got a pretty good career record. I've I've, I've won a lot of things. Um, but yeah, that was, and that led, unfortunately, to look for two years, three years. Um, I went out of. I went out of profile totally. I, I'd left Fletcher's at that stage. I was on my own. I had my own business consultancy. I did nothing for two years. I was hiding from the public. Uh, I didn't want to be seen. What it, did, did you just sort of have like a fear that if you if you showed your face anywhere, just you, lost confidence? Yeah, yeah, really, lost confidence. And and obviously, I was I suffered depression, but I didn't know it at that time. I mean. We just didn't wasn't talk about sort of talked about. We didn't talk about depression. Not even JK was talking about it then. No. I remember I couldn't cross no. the road one day. I was so scared to cross. Oh, like anxiety. Anxiety. And, uh, you know, my mother and uh, wife Judy took me to Fiji for two weeks to try and to help because they could see that I was in a bit of a mess. And, look, I had two, two years in the wilderness and really did nothing. And um, then, then a stroke of luck changed my life again um john bailey the chairman of bailey bailey's real estate um he must have heard that i was struggling i didn't even know him must have heard that i was i was struggling and um he was he was organizing a fundraiser for um team new zealand and the aim was to run a six-week online auction everyone contributing items and you know bidding and and then a big dinner and he asked he came and asked me out of the blue would i would I lead that for him? And and I thought, well, yeah, yeah. I decided to. I don't know why I decided to because I had no confidence in myself at that stage. But mm. it was immensely successful. It got me back on the on the road, and more importantly, he then because it was successful, he did really well. And he a month or so after that, he asked me to go on the board of Bailey's and. Uh, I became his the first independent director outside of the family to be on the board of Bailey's and uh, stayed there for 20 years. I just retired a year ago and, you know, I owe, I owe him and that company so much. So a great company. I mean, I just enjoyed the, mm. working with them. But, you know, you needed a break and I got a break. Um, and otherwise I just don't know what where I'd be. And, mm. and life life evolved again and I found myself and found my confidence and, and you know, went on and I've been – doing some fantastic things in the last 15 years or so. I've really yeah, enjoyed absolutely. life again. It's been, yeah. it's been fantastic. I think there's a good, a good message in there eh, for a lot of people. It's like, um, th- you know, this too shall pass. You know, that's, um, I think that was an Abraham Lincoln uh, quote. And th- things do get better and, you know, it never stays stormy forever. But did, you, did you get any professional help in that time or anything? No, or I did didn't. You, you didn't even no. see um, your old mate Dr. John? No, or? well, I didn't, no. I, I, well, I, I really probably... I mean, John. John. I was seeing John Mayhew, but yeah. I mean, we were. I. Yeah, it's a hard thing to go back and think about because, 
I was obviously depressed. You know, you hear about it today, and mm. I was obviously depressed. I mean, I can remember that I couldn't cross the road. Mm. I, I didn't want to go across. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty bad. John Hart. Next up, TikTok superstar with Tourette's, Uncle Tick. He reflected on his first few years growing up and his earliest memories of being diagnosed. What you have done in the last few years for uh, Tourette's and for people with Tourette's, it's phenomenal, bro. Thank you, bro. I appreciate it. Is, it is really, really cool. It's like um, just, uh, I, I don't know, I suppose, open the doors of appreciation and understanding for a lot of people. What are your recollections of like the first four years of your life? So it was like four, you, I believe you were like four years old when you started doing some like blinking? Yep, blinking and verbal tics. Um, it's pretty hard out, bro. Um, I, I, was, I, was, I was a happy kid, bro. Up until the age of nine, I wanted to kill myself. And it was pretty bad. But I, growing up, bro, I was a happy kid, man. Just knew I was a little bit different from, from Joe Bloggs down the road. But happy as, bro. Yeah, love life. Mm. Loved eating food. Loved running around and footballs and fucking soccer balls. Yeah, bro. Yeah, mm. loved it, man. But, but do, you, do you remember like being like preschool age? Cause I, I remember nah. fuck all from – so you, you don't remember – well, has your mum said to you, like, oh, we took you to a specialist because this or... Oh, every, every yeah. <laughs> Big one. No. Nah, I don't remember much of my younger age, eh? Like, when I was four, I just remember house parties at home and mum and dad would have a party sometimes on a Friday and their mates would come over. That's when I was really young. But no, I don't... I remember music. Certain music my mum used to listen to, LL Cool J and all that. Oh, really? But Gangster's Paradise and all that sort of jazz. Coolio. Yeah, Coolio as well, yep. But yeah, bro, those are my days growing up. Um, yeah, no, I, d- I didn't really have too many recollections. Eh? Okay, so, so you were diagnosed with um, Tourette's, ADHD. And OCD, yeah. OCD. At what age? Well, my doctors, well, the notes are quite quite broad on my, on my things. It was between the ages of six and nine. And... Um, but they already knew I had a disability. They just wanted to, they wanted to dummy on me, really. For example, they would like test certain medications on me, like new Ritalins and that, between those ages, and see how it would help me and how it wouldn't, or you know, pros and cons. But yeah, that that's when I got diagnosed between those ages. Yeah. Mm. And then, so so when did the uh, like the swearing start? That that oh. aspect of Tourette's or saying inappropriate things, like eleven or twelve. Right. Yeah. Copulator just happened to happen. Yeah. That's the name of the Tourette's coprolalia. Right. There's different types of Tourette's, just like there's different types of autism, spectrum-wise. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'd say I'm on the worst side of mine. <laughs> fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, fuck yeah then, was that a tick or was that? Yeah, that was a tick, yeah. Right, right. Funny, eh? It kind of worked with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it did. No, it did. Some funny things it did. It's like a crossover. And, yeah, fuck yeah. Bro. Okay, so, um, so, you, so you go to preschool, you start primary school. Like, what, what, are, what are those years like? I mean, uh, I suppose I'm projecting here, but from when I was that age, all I wanted to do was fit in. Like mum, mum used to make me clothes, and I'd get teased for the clothes I'd wear. I'd, I was wearing, and all I wanted to do was fit in. So yeah, I, so you're a suit one. Okay, right. So I, I can't imagine. I mean, uh, you're wearing homemade clothes from your mum is a bit different to having, um, you know, something like Tourette's. But I, I'm guessing you're probably exactly the same in that you just want to fucking fit in. I understand you, and I understand what you're trying to say. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I never fit fit in, bro. I never fit into anything. Um, yeah. Oh, that's harsh. In school, bro, uh, I, I struggled. Yeah, school was the worst thing in my life. I got suspended from... Okay, so I, got a, I haven't even said this on my own podcast or my own stuff on tickets. Um, um, but I remember this one day at school and we were... It was about a month or two before we went away for camp and I was 10 years old. I was in room two 
at Otorohanga South School. And I was really young, and this girl was bullying me, bro. I remember her. She's still a friend of my friends list to this day. I don't talk to her anymore. She's a bit of a bitch. But um, fucking, she was bullying me for my Tourette's and would get in my face. And I'd be moving around and kicking and doing my thing. And she came too close one day, and I fucking fear kicked her. Funny. It was a tick. Right? I, I ticked her and I kicked her. Yeah, bro, like, bop, papped her, bro. I fucking smacked mm. her up. Couldn't help that. And I apologised. And then she went and told my teacher at the time, not going to name her, and then she's like, go and see the principal right now. And then I run, walked up there by her, dragged up to the principal's office, sat outside. And then she comes in and goes, this boy's not allowed to come away with us on camp. He keeps doing this, 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 and this. He's a liability. And I was like, whoa, I couldn't help that if you'd let me explain. But I didn't get any word in. And so I was banned for going on year seven camp. So, so yeah. Year seven. So how old were you? Oh, like, I must have been 12. 12. Yeah, okay, sorry. like intermediate. Yeah, intermediate school. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. Um, I was trying to think But it all makes sense Okay So I was banned from going And they wouldn't let me go And I feel like it, it, that, that fucked me up For a fucking long time Because I couldn't Fucking help it And if she wasn't bullying me I probably wouldn't Have ticked and kicked her Like I fear kicked her bro mm-hmm. She was a fucking bitch She deserved that At the end of the day um, and It was just ridiculous But man I'll never forget that bro When I was young And they pretty much Outed me Because of my disability And because they were Mocking me so yeah, that broke my heart when I was real young. But then after that, bro, I grew thick ass skin. Uncle Tex on the Generate Summer Series. Next up, Ben O'Keefe, New Zealand's top rugby ref who got death threats after the 2023 Super Rugby Final between the Chiefs and the Crusaders. He shared some opinions on his friend and fellow referee, Wayne Barnes. So you, you dropped the name uh, Nigel Owens just a second ago. What mm. about Wayne Barnes? If you had much, Wayne Barnes became uh, New Zealand public enemy number one after the World Cup in twenty seven. Yeah, where he was he was refing the French All Blacks game, which we lost in emphatic fashion. Really, like they just they just everything went their way in the second half. I mean, that was, that was an awful. You look back now on reflection, it was an awful time for him. Like the backlash yeah. was. Uh, yeah, it's been I mean, what what you had, um, and we'll get to this after the Super Rugby final with the Crusaders and Chiefs. It's probably like a pebble in the river compared to what he had. Well, and that's the difference. That's what I that's what I realised when I went to my first World Cup is that the difference is the game's the same, yeah. the stadium's the same, but the amount of the millions of people that are watching is very different. You know, mm. so especially a quarter final like that. So Wayne Barnes, um, and and it was it was great. Like I got to a position when I got I was sort of doing test matches. I knew how to referee a test match well, so I actually went back and I watched that game. And and honestly, like he nailed that game from a referee, mm. referee point of view. Mm. Like you couldn't referee that game any better. I, I was like, when is this forward pass coming out? Because he's absolutely smoking this game. <laughs> and 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 I want to say it now, and I'm sure he would probably never say that. But any referee in that position, like you'd miss that forward pass because mm. you can't keep up with a French fly that runs up and then does a pass. You know, like I'd if I was refereeing that game, I'd be in the same position as he was, and I'd be I'd be criticised. The, the benefit now is that we actually get to check that stuff before. Um, after a try scored, so they actually okay. back then they couldn't use the TMO. Right. So you know his hands were tied, um, unfortunately, in that situation. But so do I know Wayne Barnes. He he's our leader. He's one of the greatest referees I think that's ever been. Him and Nigel Owens. Um, but Wayne Barnes is a great friend, and you know we we catch up a lot. He always hosts us around at his place um, when we're up in the northern hemisphere. He always gets his, he loves getting his Kiwi guys around. We always bring Bolapino Noir from New Zealand. Um, his wife cook, always cooks a lovely meal. Like his kids are there, and that's that's the thing around. Our group of referees at that level, we we travel a lot together. We're in those high intense moments together. We spend two weeks in Argentina together, in South Africa. We are on FaceTime to our family and friends together. We we see things like um, I remember, um, you know, Angus Garner. I remember seeing 
like his boy catch one of his first fish um, when we were overseas mm. together, which which is a sad part around like what we do as well. Like you miss those moments. Yeah. Um, but you know we we're so tight because of those moments as well. So um, we've got twelve referees going to the World Cup. Um, I think yeah, five assistant referees, seven seven TMOs, and like we're such a tight group. Not because we have to, because of all the you know things coming our way. But we've just spent so much time together. We understand each other. But we're well, like also a team on to, your own, aren't yeah, you? Really? Yeah, yeah, we're a massive team on yeah. our own. Like we love to like, a little bit of steam off, enjoy each other's company. Um, we all play golf together. Mm. We you know like to go out together, have you know great meals mm. together. And and Wayne Barnes is one of them. Like great, like such a great, great individual human being. So have you? Did, have you? Um, maybe even on, on a night out after a couple of pinos, have you had a chat to him about like how did he cope with the back? I, I suppose like in twenty seven, it was sort of um, social media wasn't. What it is now? Maybe it was in the early days of Facebook. I can't really remember. Bebo, I don't know what was Bebo, yeah, Bebo and MySpace. MySpace. <laughs> but I feel like was, I, feel, I feel like people were less accessible than than what they are now. It's easier to track people down. But I mean, what sort of toll did that take on his mental health? Have you got any idea? Oh, massive, massive toll. Yeah. And, and like credit to him now, like to be where he is now like, as the best referee in the world. Yeah, you know, he's got through all of that. Um, and you know, obviously, it just it comes down to a lot of obviously support that he has from family, mm. um, especially his wife and, and friends. Like, what a shit time! Like, terrible time. Oh, disgusting. And, and yeah, disgust. And I think he 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 talks about it. And, like, he's so open about it now. He, it's it's quite a good story when he when he does like his his after dinner speeches. And um, I think he wore a wig for um, the rest of the tournament for the semis and the finals because he had to. <laughs> but he had to like, like he, a disguise. He had to wear a disguise because like he was he's well known. Like he's he's recognisable, especially over there. Yeah. And I think you know, like New Zealanders and a lot of other people, they you know they like it was it was really really bad afterwards. So um, like he's he's taken all of those learnings and and obviously bottled that up, learned from it, and you know has has been. I think he became the most capped test international test referee mm. if there's ever been um, at the at the start of the year. So yeah. Um, yeah, really 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 hard for him, but like he's been so open about it, shared it with us, so you know we can learn about it for us. And you know, but there's 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 a lot of examples of this. From it's it's almost like it'll happen to me if it hasn't happened to me already. But it'll happen to me again. The more the the more the, the better you become, the more high games you do, the more trust the bosses have to put you on the big games. Um, and whether you're right or wrong, whether you're right or wrong, like it'll be controversial. So there'll be there'll be one team that doesn't think you did well, one nation that doesn't think you did well, and, mm. and one thing that one one nation that probably thought you did okay. So. Um, he's done that, you know. We've had um, with Bryce Lawrence, you know, the same thing with South Africa after his quarterfinal, where basically, you know, he couldn't go back to South Africa, and and it was close to sort of his career slowly sort of finished after that. And you know, he's been really open about it. But you hear about these these guys. I remember we were in Dubai at a at a camp, and we'd never really sort of had everyone talk about it officially. But we need to hear that kind of stuff. Like, and I always say this: you have got to be open about anything. Communication is key, yeah. not just on the field, but off the field with experiences and and in life and course it works in rugby and we had these individuals get up there we had the Craig Joubert the Bryce Lawrence's the Wayne Barnes Nigel Owens get up there and, and tell us about their moments their experiences where where shit hit the fan and and it all came crashing down for them and and what they did to learn to get to get back up from mm. it because um I've, I've had moments like that where games have happened and you've had all the controversy we talk about the Super Rugby final but there's been games before that and I'm going into one of the biggest World Cups soon I've got a, I've got massive pool games um, and if all goes well, you know, you, you do some playoff games. It's lose lose for a referee, right? But I love I love that I love that challenge. But you you'll never get out smelling like roses. And if you if you think you're going to do, well, you're just you're setting yourself up to failure. So you just mm. got to go in there, into that den, fight, do as best as you can, knowing that no one else can do as good a job as you can. 
and then trust and enjoy mm. whatever it is it is. Ben O'Keefe on the Generate Summer Series. Next up, Susie Bates, arguably the greatest New Zealand cricketer of all time. I caught up with her in the UK. We were both over there at the same time. She shared her memories of going to the Olympics as a teenager for basketball. You make the um, the team to go to the Olympics. Um, I'm guessing basketball, there's probably no expectation really of New Zealand to win a medal, right? So you're, you're kind of there as a tourist, would you say? Or is that, would that, is that a mean thing to say? <laughs> no, that's not at all. I sort of have, I look back on that experience and like, I was so overwhelmed. Like I was 19 from Dunedin and I'd watched the Olympics on TV and I, I was like, man, that would be cool to go to an Olympics. But I kind of didn't think it was going to happen, but it worked out that Australia won the world champs, so we had an easier qualification. And I just got there, and every day I was, like, overwhelmed. You know, like, you were seeing Roger Federer, you were, like, even the New Zealand athletes that we had at the time, like Valerie Adams and the Hamish Bonds and oh, yeah, Eric Murray yeah. and the gold medalists, and you were kind of in that bubble that for so long you'd just watched on TV. And... um just walking around the village and there was free stuff everywhere and there was this massive food hall with a 24-hour <laughs> McDonald's, which was like you just go up and order 12 Big Macs if you wanted. But obviously, <laughs> we were athletes. Um, and, yeah, we competed hard, but, like, we – I don't know where our ranking was, but mm. the fact that we won our first game and we didn't win any games after that, but we uh, definitely partied afterwards. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's what you'd hope with the Olympics, I guess. As someone that's that's never never been, never has a chance of going, you just want to get your event over and done with early so you can enjoy the whole Olympic experience. There'd be nothing worse, say, than – you know, having your event on the last day or something. So did you guys take advantage of the McDonald's or do you have – it's, it's quite weird, isn't it, because I suppose they were a big sponsor of the Olympics, but you don't associate necessarily McDonald's with, um, you know, the elite you know, sports people of the world. Did you have, like, a nutritionist or anyone on your team that's like, now, girls, easy, easy on the Big Macs? <laughs> well, it was kind of like – and I, I guess going there with the expectation to win gold – you can't embrace it how we embraced it. Yeah. So yeah. It's, a, it's a different experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We played, we got there, we trained hard, we ate well. But when we'd finished, you can't, like, you stay until everyone leaves. What a shame. They probably do it different now with COVID. But, like, the New Zealand athletes, we, I think we had nine days where we'd finished and we got to stay at the village. And I was like, what do they expect us to do? Like, we, we just went out every night and we'd end up at McDonald's every night. And But there, it's funny, you turn up to the Olympics, well, this was my experience, and everyone at the start keeps themselves as very serious training and then it slowly just <laughs> capitulates to, like, this uni college party. And <laughs> there's unfortunate athletes that are at the end, but you can just see everyone just gets loose. Because for four years, some of these Oh, yeah, highly strung for four years, yeah, just thinking about this every day. So we were part of that, and we got amongst it. And it was, yeah, those people that I had that week with are some of my closest mates. We just are spread out all over the world, and we don't see each other, but we had a good time. <laughs> and your your whole family went over to, to watch and support as well. That must have been incredible. It was very cool, yeah. and... I remember sort of the moment that, like, with my older brothers, I was like, yeah, they've, I'm at the Olympics and, uh, like, I've made it and they, they're proud of me. And I'm sure they always were, but that was kind of a moment for me. And I was getting them into after parties, so that made me feel like I was the cool younger sister. So I remember looking up in the stand when the first national anthem came on and they were all there. So, yeah, that was the first time probably 
in my international career that I'd had everyone um, watching mm. me. So w- w- were you like nervous at the time? Like, Have you ever sort of suffered like a, a thing called imposter syndrome? Or, or no, were you just sort of, I deserve to be here, I belong here, or you didn't, just didn't even sort of think about it? I think with that, I got dropped the tour just before the Olympic selection. So I remember missing out on the 12 and I was like, oh, my Olympic dream's over. But I gave it everything and I sort of accepted that. But that tour didn't go very well. So then I just was like, I'm just going to train as hard as I can until this whole campaign's over. And they came back and, like, unfortunately some people in that squad had failed, but I almost hadn't been in the coach's eyes and I'd worked really hard. And so I felt lucky to make the 12. So when I got there, I didn't really feel expectation. I knew I'd be on the bench, but I just, every time I went on, I was going to give it my all. And I actually had probably one of my best games for New Zealand at the Olympics against Spain. Um, And that was quite a cool moment because after that, I thought I can actually really compete at international level where I always felt Otago level, but the next step up and playing against proper international teams, I didn't quite believe I had the skill, but that was a moment that I was mm. like, oh, I can do this, yeah. Yeah, oh, good for you. And and uh, you mentioned Roger Federer before. Like, did you did you meet anyone uh, like at the Olympics? Or did you sort of leave them alone? You, you sort of see them from uh, – well, actually, this is probably before like phones <laughs> with cameras, right? Not quite that. There were cameras, but oh, sh- I, like on shitty Nokia's or yeah. And I was, th- I don't know, I was too shy, which is a sort of a regret. It's I the most Dunedin thing ever. Isn't I know, it? and you feel like everyone's doing, everyone's there doing the same things. You don't want to pester. Mm. You're not like a fan. You felt like you were an athlete, and if everyone was coming up to you, you're going to be annoying. So, but I sort of regret that because it was my one chance. But we did meet the dream team, which was the highlight of my entire life. Oh, the US men's team? Yes. <laughs> Did, well, yeah, what was the circumstances? Uh, <laughs> now, now you, I feel like I need to um, censor this from other Olympic athletes because okay. <laughs> <laughs> they'll be like, what What an Olympics they had. Um, <laughs> this, we went and watched the men's final and the security guard was like, everyone was cheering for Spain and they were like, if you cheer for us, you can come to the after party. And I don't even know how that really happened, but I didn't really believe it. We went back to the village, and then next minute this girl was like, the, the bus is here, we've got to go, we've got to go, and we rushed out, and it was the basket, the men's American basketball team on the bus, and we got taken to this rooftop party. They had all these curtains pulled on the bus, and they were like, no selfies, no photos. We had to go off the back of the bus, they went off the front, and then we are up in this rooftop party with the dream team just hanging out. <laughs> so what, Which when I say it out loud, it's still, I'm like, I don't even know how it happened, but it did. It's bonkers. Yeah, so LeBron James was in the team. Kobe? Was Kobe in the team? Yeah, Kobe was in the team. You meet him? I did meet Kobe, which, um, yeah, they were having a good time, the the men's team. But, yeah, it was. What, what, yeah, what do you mean? You, what's the interaction or the conversation? Well, we just got put in this, like, booth with all these free drinks, and they were sort of sitting around and... One of the girls, and I was like, oh, my gosh, it's so embarrassing. It was like, she plays cricket for New Zealand. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll never forget Dwayne Wade, who was at the time one of my favourites. He was like, you're telling me you play a game for five days and you don't get a result? That's what he knew about cricket. And I was like, oh, I was just so awkward and shy. Um, But we just, I don't know, we just talked and partied. And I just 
I don't even know. I probably didn't say much because I was like so just overawed. In awe. Yeah. yeah, and David yeah. Beckham was at the party oh, too. Oh, for fuck's so. sake! <laughs> yeah. Wow! Oh, you almost overlooked that one. Uh, yeah, no. He <laughs> was, oh, yeah. By the way, he was an extra VIP section. Um, Dirk Nowitzki was around those Olympics. He was um, a pretty big time player, and yeah, we just partied with celebrities. Unbelievable! <laughs> I thought the All Blacks, you know, were cool, and then I went to the Olympics, and I was like, "Oh yeah, that's no, that's that's next level." So was Le- LeBron a big deal at the time? Was this, this fairly early on in his? He would have. He was big deal, but he. What I remember about him is he came down the bus and he introduced himself to everyone, which I thought was so ridiculous. Like, hi, I'm LeBron. I'm like, no shit. <laughs> yeah, we know, mate. Yeah, isn't that I'm funny? Susie. Isn't that funny? Because. Um, I'm going to drop a name here. Nowhere as good as your name drop, though. But um, uh, one of my friends, Christian Cullen, used to play for the All Blacks. I loved Christian Cullen. And um, many years ago, uh, Tiger Woods came to New Zealand to play the New Zealand Golf Open in Parapara Umu. And Christian and, and a bunch of other All Blacks, they, they got the chance to go there and, and meet him. So they're waiting in the car park specifically for Tiger to turn up so they can meet him. And then Tiger gets out of his car and goes around everyone and does the same thing. Like, hi, I'm Tiger Woods. <laughs> and Christian's like, yeah, I, I know who the fuck you are. Like, we've been waiting here 45 minutes for isn't that something? So LeBron's the same. Yeah, he yeah made a point. It was really friendly, and I just yeah was like, "Hi, I'm Susie. Hi." <laughs> but yeah, very cool. It was. Um, I, I really don't even know how we got ourselves in that position, but it was um, the highlight of the Olympics, other than the first game that we won, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure the um, yeah, the New Zealand Olympic Co- Committee or Sports Funding New Zealand would hate to hear that. Yeah. The highlight of the fucking games is meetings. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what do you what do you do? You get like a a participation like medal or, or certificate? You know, saying you, you made the New Zealand squad and. Like what you sort of trinkets or souvenirs do you get? You get a lot. Yeah. Um, That's actually really cool. Like you get a number, so you're Olympian. I think I was 194 and you get a badge and that's your number forever. Um, you get like this photo board of every single athlete that attended that Olympics. Um, you know, there's lots of like we got a Ponamu fern, yeah, and I've kept so much of that stuff. So, like, a blazer uniform and, I, yeah, just that you're an Olympic athlete. Susie Bates. Now we go into Sir Peter Leach, also known as the Mad Butcher. We talked about his public controversy in January 2017 when he became nationwide news for days on end after he was accused of being racist. There was an, like a, a racism incident on Waiheke Island. I I felt compelled to like message you because I yeah. um, that that made me so sad. And when was that? Yeah. Like 2017, 2018? You made a joke to someone. I, yeah. So you I made didn't it, make ma- a joke. There was a group of girls, ladies, and they'd been drinking, and they wanted to talk to me. They were like this to me, so I went over and talked to them, and I said, "Just by the way, we've got a sergeant on the island." and he's really hot on drink driving. She said, I'm tongue and a fender and I can do what I like. And I said, yes, and it's a white man island as well. And the as well got taken out. And she went straight home and posted, a, you know, she was drunk, posted the thing on there. And there's no question I got hammered. No question. Yeah, I felt, I felt really bad for you I, because... I can say this. Yeah. There were some very racist comments made to me as well, okay? But out of every negative, there's a positive... Tama Eti come out and supported me. Now, if anyone could have bagged me, 
with credibility was Tam Eddie. He's a pro, mate, you know, but he came out and supported me. Yeah. So I rang him a few weeks to find out why, and I won't go with the details, but the way he did. And then there was another guy on social media, an island guy from uh, uh, Mangry, and um, he said, so you think he's a racist? Well, I'm a Samoan, he said, and I, I rang him. I rang the mad butcher stop to speak to him, and he said, it goes like this. Good afternoon, Mad Butcher speaking. Uh, I want to speak to the real Mad Butcher. You got the real Mad Butcher. No, no, I want to speak to the real Mad Butcher. You got the fucking real Mad Butcher. And he said, I told him that my daughter's sick and I needed to fundraise and I didn't know how to do it. And uh, he said to me, you better come down straight away. And he said, uh, you'll be too busy to see me. And he said to me in a gruff voice, he said, listen, mate, if I'm too busy to help someone... With a sick child, hmm. I'm not worth knowing. He come down, and my my office was a tin shed in the backyard of the shop at Massey Road. Hmm. And uh, he come in, and we had a talk, and I told him how to do it. And I said, I'm going to give you some meat vouchers, and you'll turn them into how to, I t- told him how to turn them in, and I gave him a few tips. And he said, where are all the other Polynesians that have he's helped? And I know mm. there's plenty. Where are you? Yeah. The tide come out. The tide come out. Yeah. What's when when something like that happens? And she had to take that comment down. Yeah. Were, yeah. were you? Um, yeah. I mean, I mean that that was mean. It's, it feels like it was banter. Like she was making yeah, banter yeah, about being yeah, a mouldy and the perks yeah. that come with that. And then you. Yeah. And then. Um, yeah, did Susan DeVoy piss you off? Like, she was the race relation counsellor at the time, and she first of all came out and said, oh, the mad butch is the least racist person no, no, I know, no, and then no, she said... No, of, no, 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 no. Susan DeVoy is a good friend. Yeah. But she was told by her superiors that that was inappropriate for her to do that. Yeah. But she had already done it, so it was okay. Yeah. No, I won't have a bad word said against yeah. her. No. But I, I, I mean, I, I was frustrated for you in, in that time, so I felt... um. Yeah. I know I know you're big enough and ugly enough to look after yourself, yeah. but I thought I got a I got a message to this guy because, my I I found it heartbreaking and because you you have done so much for um Maori and Pacifica communities. My family and me went through some bad times. Yeah, did you? No question. Oh yeah, very. Bad. It's rough. Mate, oh, there's an outpouring of support. Like I know Monty and a bunch yeah, of the warriors. Yeah. Let me let me say this. Okay. There's two sides to racism: mm. the European, then the Maori side, and I got that Maori side big time. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's dead and buried. She had to take her thing down because she got so much hate mail, you know. And um, yeah, it's over and done with. We move on. Sue Peter Leach on the Generate Summer Series. Next up, Mary Lambie, iconic New Zealand broadcaster. She was on Celebrity Treasure Island for a brief time in 2023. But in this snippet, we chat about her job as media trainer for the now Prime Minister, Christopher Luxon. When this podcast comes out, all the election debates will be over with. Um, at this stage, there's only been the one that was on TV One with uh, Jessica Much Mackay. Did you watch it? Uh, I sure did. But and you, I, um, I, I, I thought um, Chris Luxon did a fantastic job. He sure did. Yeah, I was so proud of him. But, but I, I said to my partner afterwards, I said, I said because she was like, oh, you know. Um, uh, Luxon pissed all over Hipkins. And I said, yeah, but if, if you're a, a staunch Labour, Labour voter, you probably think it's the opposite way around. I, I think you can read those things any way yeah, you want, Yeah, I can't think you? your, your natural biases come into it and you want to really champion yeah. for your guy. Yeah, um, so I, I bring this up. So you're working with um, Christopher Luxon. Yeah, I'm just one cog in the wheel. <clears throat> He's got a fantastic team, a really solid team. He is um, 
he's a very, very nice man to work with. He's respectful. He's receptive to ideas. He works like a Trojan. I mean, we know what it's like to put graft in. Well, times at roughly what you and I do by 10, and that's his average day. Mm. And I thought he performed exceptionally well. Never, ever lose sight of the fact he's very new to this game. Like, he's five minutes in politics compared to the rest of the career politicians sitting in the Labour lot. And, you know, it's a hard game. Mm. Politics, man, it's a brutal, mm. brutal game. So so what's what's your job? We can focus this on you rather than um, Christopher Luxon, but like, is it media training? Is that what you'd call it? I would call it, yes. I think just tapping into some of the experience that I've had in TV and maybe some of the things that we say and we do and we look and we express and the language that we use. And But don't forget, as I say, he's got a really strong team around him uh, you know, their policy people and their comms people, they're, they're really awesome. And so I'm probably the cog in the chain that says, well, look, probably in a TV environment, I'll do this, look here, do this, da, da, ch- take that out, maybe use that language, not that language. You know, it's mm. it's that sort of stuff. Right. But I'm just tinkering around the edges with little bits and pieces. Does he, does he, need, he need to cut, cut back on saying look so much? Let's be clear. Is that I noticed tri- Locke the other day. Locke. He's trimmed that back enormously. I was very proud of him. It's really hard, actually, when you get into a bit of a thing. You know, you get little catchphrases. And then you'll stick with them for six months and then you'll move on to something else. And he, he, but he got rid of that pretty quickly, actually, once mm. it was identified. But no, he, he, as I say, he's very, very, super receptive. Super receptive. It's not like you'll go, that's a really stupid idea. Or no, no, he is not that guy. And he reads and he works and he barely sleeps. I, I simply don't know how he does it. What are you voting for? Can I ask? I've always been sort of like leaning, le- national leaning. Um, in the last election, when Judith Collins was running for national, I voted for ACT. Yeah. And I did have David Seymour on the podcast earlier this year. He's had a awesome. Great chat with him. I really yeah. liked him. But, yeah, yeah. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know, I'll probably be one of these people that decide when I get in the booth, but it'll either be national or what probably did you, national. What did you get out of David? I should listen to that one. What did you learn about him? Oh, he had some fabulous stories. Like He, he lost his mum uh, at quite a young age, like in his late teens, early 20s. Oh, yeah. So she, was, she was sick with cancer, so she had like a, a, bit, a bit of a... A bit of a bit of a lead up, like she knew she was going to die. Mm. Um, so she she recorded like a DVD for all her sons with just a, basically like a, a message to give to their their partners when they when they meet the person they're going to marry. Yeah. And he's never watched it. Oh wow! I, I'm like, surely you must have had a curiosity. He's like, no, it's, it's not for me. It's for the person that I marry. So I'm like, what is it? Like an instruction manual? He's like, I don't know. I'm like, you must have talked to your brothers about it because surely there's a similar. He goes, no, we, we, we've never discussed it. Good Lord. So it just, um, I don't know, I feel that the, the chat with him sort of hum, humanised him a bit. Yeah. A lot of he's people sort of think really he's a bit clever. robotic. Yeah, very and smart. from a media perspective, I mean, he's, he's gold, isn't he? He always comes out with those lovely sound bites. Yeah. yeah, real zingers. Do you know that he and Luxon actually lived literally next door to each other? Did he tell that story? No. Yeah, yeah. Literally, there's a hedge between them. This is back in the day. And so they know each other as, first and foremost, neighbours. So when Christopher was at Air New Zealand, David was literally in the house next door. Wow. Mm. Well, small world. Small world. We live in a village. <laughs> now they're going to have offices next yeah. to each other. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> Mary Lambie. Now Rob Mokadaka. Now a very happy and healthy mental health advocate. Rob's life was very different when he attempted a thing called suicide by cop in 2009. I called the police on myself because I thought I was the biggest pile of crap in the world. No one will ever forgive me for all the things that I'd compiled. I built a case against myself. 
and all the floodgates from the past just burst open. So it's like the past, present, future is all converging all at once, and you're hurt, scared, angry, confused. And I thought, I don't want to be alive. And I thought, I know. I've seen police shoot Māori on the news, right or wrong. I'm on Māori. That should be easy. And I thought I deserved a violent death. So I called the police up, brother. Called them on myself. And um, ended up being shot in the chest at close range by provoking the police to shoot me dead. <sighs> I mean, the whole thing is just awful. And there's so much to unpack here. The video footage, it's, it's very difficult to watch, but... You hear the call, you, you call yourself and you describe yourself and you're wearing um, like costume camouflage gear. Well, I'm wearing World War II trousers from a theatre show that I co-wrote and co-acted in. And I'm wearing an Air Force Army trench coat, which a good friend of mine gave to me as a present. So I'm looking like somebody's having a massive mental breakdown who looks pretty crazy dressed in military regalia. Mm. So I was pretty much dressing the part. And freaking the police out. Yeah, so so you had a, a knife in one hand, and in the other hand you had like a ladle covered with a tea towel. Tea towel. So they'd so, think that was a gun. Yeah. So I had a, yeah, it was a meat cleaver and a soup ladle wrapped in a tea towel, and I went out there wanting to be just. I just wanted it to end, and I wanted this hurt to stop in my mind, and so you know the the police officer did say, "Don't take another step," and I took that step. And guess what happens when you take that step? And they say, don't take another step. So I uh, got that 9mm bullet into me, ripped through my internal organs, dropped me, and I realised I made a terrible mistake. Yeah, and you can hear that in the, the, in the, the footage, because there were camera crews that made it there in time. You were, you, were so, you were yelling out over and over again, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Yeah, yeah and I've had quite a few people ask me, well, who are you sorry to, Rob? And I had to think about it, and I was like, I think I was sorry to the policeman, or I was freaking out. Mm. I was sorry to everybody I may have hurt in my life growing up. It was just all these sorries compounded from childhood. So so just going back a little bit, so the, the police turn up, then how long is, is that whole interaction? I don't know. Time right. Time is just right. blurred. Right, so, you, so you hear this, you're in the house, you hear the sirens that you called on yourself, and then you come out on the street? So I called the police and I was wondering, on myself, uh, and I was wondering why no one has come into the house. In my mind, they're going to burst and blow me away, and that's the end of Rob. But no one was coming in the house, and I was getting frustrated, so I went outside onto the street, and um, yeah, that's where they were outside, because I did call them. Mm -hmm. And they're how far away from you? So you're on the street, one's hiding behind a tree, one's hiding behind the police car. Like yeah. 20 metres, 15 metres? Oh, it's, yeah, around about 15 metres. Right. And they're not that far away, brothers. And, and so. And do they, do, they, do they try and negotiate with yes, you? Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this, this police officer's trying to reach out to me and ask me what my name is and trying to reach out, but I'm in this full storm. I call it the storm of suicidal ideation, where I was like, don't try and reach out to me. And I actually, I think I may have said my name. I did say my name, actually. And so I said my name. What's your name? I said my name. And like, and this has got my other inner voice, which is all in shop representation, and my mm, inner voice going, mm. my inner critic or my inner tanifa saying, why the hell did you tell him your name? And basically, it was kind of like I was trying to reach out through the mm. through the storm myself. But he did warn me. They said, what's in the tito? I said, you know what's in the tito? They said, don't take another step. I took that step and bang, shot in the chest at close range. Rob Mokadaka on the Generate Summer Series. Next up, Mealy Kerr. 
The phenomenal young New Zealand cricketer. She reflected on the game she played for New Zealand when she was just 17 years old and still at school and scored over 200 runs against Ireland. But I've seen video footage of that. It looks like it's on like a school field or something. Yeah, it was on a club ground. Right. So, there's houses in the background. Yeah, houses in the background. It's just that old Irish, Irish kind of ground. It was a cool little ground, but yeah, it's amazing now where we're playing from where, it, where it's come, but yeah. Yeah, it is. It's, it's remarkable, yeah. eh? Yeah. It is. Like, so that's like five years ago, and um, so it's such a short passage of time, but so much has changed. Yeah, ridiculous amounts. And yeah, like the footage I've seen looks like it's recorded on someone's handy cam yeah, or phone I think or something. It, I think it was. <laughs> so so what, what are your recollections of that? Was it just a just a day or a game where just everything went right? You're in that flow state? Yeah. What happened? I think so. So I wasn't – it's like people are like, what are you thinking about? Well, I wasn't thinking. And I think that sometimes when you're in your best form as a batter in, in cricket, you just are so – your mind's so clear. Um, but, yeah, I started my career as a bowler, but I always batted growing up and always have been pretty technically technically good and it was kind of a strength thing with batting. And, um, yeah, I got the opportunity to open the batting that game and I didn't bat much for New Zealand – um, so I just wanted to kind of make the most of it and I'd been working really hard on my betting and yeah, just, you know, had a bit of luck along the way, but things just kind of fell into place and it was just playing, I guess, a strength, strength-based approach, playing my game, but not premeditating, not overthinking and yeah, it's, everyone asks about it and I don't really know what to say ever, but I think it was just I loved batting and I wasn't a batter at that point in my career. Mm. Um, and I wasn't after that either. But I just wanted to make the most of that opportunity. Yeah, 232 uh, not out. It's insane. It's crazy, eh? Yeah, I mean... Do you, look, you look back now, you're still in the in the early stages of your career, but you're an established player. Like, you, you look back now and what do you think? Like, you're a, ki- yeah. you're a kid, basically, eh? Yeah, I mean, I haven't thought about it. Too much, but yeah, when you think, when you, as you get older and you think about it, I was seventeen, mm. still in school, and yeah, I, but it was yeah, crazy day really, and and, and you oh, and you, so the team went out to celebrate afterwards, and you you couldn't even go to the go to yeah, the we bar. all so they we all had a drink and we all had, we all had a drink in the bar afterwards. Um, <laughs> what did you have, like a, like a raspberry yeah, and lemonade? Like, or? Yeah, the classic raspberry and coke. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so the t- we had a team drink in the bar. I was allowed in the bar because someone could just say they're my parents. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it was nice. Like the team celebrated it. They had a drink for me, and then you know Love Island was on, so had to get back for that because that was the show everyone was watching. Oh, was, it, was that the season with um, Tommy and Molly? Yeah, it probably was oh, actually. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Still going strong. Wow, and then did life change much after that? I mean, that, I that's, mean that's when you yeah. first came onto my radar because I, I read about it. But in, in reflection now, I, I mean, it, it would have been a 30-second piece on the news, mm. not the lead story. Yeah. Like if, if uh, Bowden Barrett had a hamstring injury, it would have been ahead of that in the sports news that night probably. Yeah. And yeah. Lots, again, a lot's changed in Changing, the five years yeah. since then. But, yeah, did much change for you? I guess, yeah. Well, nothing changed, but... You know, there was media interviews. I was annoyed because the like, the next day, because I was a teenager as well, sleeping in, 
<laughs> and tired after that day. And then the media manager like, so breakfast TV, I want to talk to you. Can you get up at 6 a.m.? <laughs> and I was like, oh, <laughs> So, yeah, there was, there was more, I guess, media around it. Um, even today, every now and then, you, you still get asked about it. So it definitely, you just get asked about it. And there was a lot of media at that time. But I didn't really see it or anything because I was over in Ireland, um, which I think was good just to not be there to, you know, to hear that, hear that stuff. Um, And I don't go on social media too much ever and look at. um, Not getting high on your own supply. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, um, yeah, I mean, because yeah, it's a it's a double edged sword, isn't it? So if you if you if you're going to do that, and then you read, read the, the good bad shit stuff. About, yeah, hundred yeah. percent. You got to take the good with the bad. Yeah, but no, it, it it didn't change anything. But I guess you know, to a degree, it gave me somewhat a little bit of confidence that I have a method that I can score runs. Millie Kerr on the Generate Summer Series. Next up, Matt Watson. This episode with the ITM fishing guy was the longest one in 2023 at over two hours. It was also one of the most listened to and commented on. In this snippet from this podcast, Matt shares his memories of having to deliver his baby in the passenger seat of his car. I was, I was, in, I'd started the show, um, but it wasn't paying. It was in the period where it wasn't really paying, so I was still doing crewing work, um, working on a boat, boat called the Ultimate Lady, because we, you know, <laughs> we had an even bigger mortgage to pay for now, and another kid on the way. So, I was doing fencing work, farm fencing work, and I was doing crewing work when I wasn't, um, you know, put, trying to put together a TV show. And um, we'd already had Hannah, and it was I'd got him from sea. I think that day, and I was exhausted because we do big hours out on the boats. And Kaylin jumps out of bed about midnight and starts pacing. And I said, are we on? You know, you want me to start the truck up? And she said, no, 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 it's not, it's not labor. She said, it just feels like bad period pain. And I said, get in the truck. Because that's the exact word she said 45 minutes before Kayla, uh, before Hannah mm. was born. 45 minutes before Hannah was born, she was walking around the room saying, it's not labor, it's just bad period pain. And I just remembered those words. I'm like, get in the truck. She goes, no, like stupid, it's buddy, one thirty in the morning and it was a storm, like a proper thunder, lightning, pissing with rain, wild Northland storm. And I said, I don't care, getting in the truck. And she said, don't ring the midwife, don't wake Karen up in the middle of the uh, night for nothing because we're just going to go to the hospital, we'll sit there and we'll probably be, we'll be back by. So anyway, I said, I don't care, jump in the truck. We just about get out of the drive. We don't even get out of the driveway. Kayleen says, fucking drive faster, this baby's coming. And I went to give her the told you so. And I went I made eye contact and it was not the time to say <laughs> I was right. Um and like we lived down like a real long gravel road, so it's not not safe to drive fast on. And I'm yeah. just driving as fast as I was comfortable driving. And Kelly's going, Can you drive faster? And like I thought to ease the tension, I'll chuck some music on. So um I flicked the flicked the radio on. It was probably you were probably DJing then. It might have been the well, not at that hour in the morning, but I was probably the edge because um the song was Salt and Pepper Push It. <laughs> and, and this <laughs> is true. Amazing. This is a true story. Salt and so I crack up laughing. I look at Kayleen, she's not laughing, right? So she goes, change that fucking song. <laughs> so I, you know, it was still the old cassette. Push in the cassette. And unbeknown to me, where's your head at? And I was like, oh, get it? <laughs> honestly, honestly, God, they were the two songs. And then I would go, and then still did, Kenny still didn't think it was funny. <laughs> so I was like, okay, no music, just drive as fast as you can. 
And we're about, uh, you know, um, or in good driving conditions, probably 30-minute drive um, to the nearest hospital at Kawakawa. And um, we get about halfway there. We get to Pakaraka at the intersection, and Kaylene says, I, I think we're going to make it. I'm like, thank goodness. Um, and um, bear in mind, so I've not even been to an antenatal class because I've been away at sea. Um, and, you know, not for our first, not for our second. So I don't know anything about, you know, the pushing and the contractions and all that sort of stuff. And um, I don't know if that could prepare you nah, to. Nah, yeah. nah, nah. And, and I was kind of one of those guys like, geez, women used to have babies in caves. What do you need to go to a class <laughs> to learn how to have a baby for? You know, like I was that guy. So we're, we're going down the road and she said, like literally 10 seconds after she said, I think we're going to make, she goes, nah, pull over. It's coming right now. And um, I said, hold on a sec, because I could see there, there's literally one streetlight or two streetlights together at the Pakaraka Waybridge, which is the only bit of light between us and the hospital in the far north. And so I thought, if I pull up under there, I at least I'll be able to get some light to see how to, to do this baby thing. So when she said it's coming, I rang the midwife and she was like, oh, you know, how are things going? I'm like, we're having the fucking baby at the Pakaraka Waybridge. Can you get here as quick as you can? She said, yeah, I'm on my way. So um, I pull over there and then I think, oh, geez, I'm in luck. There was a guy already pulled over. It was He was wearing his yellow raincoat and he, had a, he was in a white Honda. The bonnet was up, he'd broken down. And he thought I'd pulling over to help him. And so he, um, we pull over and I'm still on the phone to the midwife. And I said, look, so I rang her and said, look, you might have talked me through what I've got to do here. And I said, hang on, look, there's a guy here. I'll pass the phone over. So this guy's walking up to my window thinking I'm, I've come to help him. And I, I open the door to give him the phone, and he turns around and just runs, like sprints back to his car, dives in the passenger side, and I watched him going around locking all his doors, and he laid on the floor of his car. And I was thinking to myself, and I said to the midwife, sorry, that guy's gone. Because there was obviously a lot of, Kayleen's in labor, so there's a lot of noise and stuff. I think he thought I was giving Kayleen a hiding. Oh, right. And he freaked out. He just thought, oh, there's this big violent situation going on. He ran and hid in his car. So I said to the midwife, look, I, I can't do this and talk to you. Just get here as quick as you can. And I, I hung up knowing that she was on her way and went around to the passenger side of the car. And I'm soaked by the stages, pissing with rain. I opened the door and I said to Kayleen, uh, I think you're going to take your pants off. Uh, to which she said, yeah, no shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, okay, Dr. Uh, Watson. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, shit. yeah. And, 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 um, so, so, so passenger seat reclined back as far as it can go. Passenger seat reclined back as far as it can go. So, you're of, sort of standing on the roadside or you, you managed to sort of squat in the. I've, yeah, I always had one knee in the well, yeah. one leg outside the door. Because I was sort of there, and um, I had a headlamp in the. Um, That's boat. lucky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a you know always prepared guy. I actually had <laughs> half a dozen towels in the back seat for this very eventuality, knowing that, that Hannah came quickly. I actually had some towels ready. Oh, actually, I actually no, I had I had six towels folded up in the back um, behind the seats, ready in case. So I'm, I'm organising the towels and to, you know protect the upholstery. <laughs> <laughs> you got to think about like, the resale. I know. Yeah, exactly. Mate. Um, <laughs> And you know, it was hard to see what was going on. There was a pretty tense situation, not ideal. Um, you know, she's she's pretty gnarly down there at the best of times, but there's a lot going on. You know, <laughs> um, a lot of fluid and stuff. Um, and but what I could see was, and we didn't know whether they're having a boy or a girl. We didn't find out for either. And um, was just very, very purple, like a lot more 
bluey purple than my Hannah was. Mm. And I thought, this doesn't look right. Mm. And um, the cord was around his neck. And it was kind of like, um, so I ring the midwife and I said, she's driving. Oh, I could hear her driving. I said, look, the cord's around his neck. Um, I, I I should cut it. I've got, a, I've got some scissors here. I'll cut it. And she said, do not cut anything. Don't cut anything. Just wait for me. And because she's thinking, here's some guy freaking out. And, you know, he's grabbing out some bloody, you know, some fishing pliers or something, <laughs> and he's going to cut an arm off, you know. And so she said, don't cut anything. So I, all I was trying to do was get my fingers in between the neck and the, mm-hmm. you know, and it's all mid-happening and thinking, shit, this is not good. And so she pulls up in a screaming halt right, right next to us in her little bloody hatchback. And How much time had passed? What do you reckon? Oh, not long. Minute. Okay. Minute, minute, two minutes. Yep. Um, and she did, her parting shots were, advice was, don't cut anything and tell Kane to stop pushing. And I'm saying to Kane, don't push. She goes, nah, things for half out, right? right? So, um, and my instinct was I still felt like I wanted to cut it. Like it was, it was so like really tight. Mm. And um, Karen, come, the midwife comes running over and she said, the cords around his neck. We need to cut it, and I wanted to give her the fucking told you so as well. Like, I could have done this. For, I could have done this two minutes ago. You told me not to. Yeah, this, and so she said, "Go to the back of my hatchback. Um, there's a medical, a green bag, and there's a medical kit in there." So I go to the back of her hatchback. That's the day I found out. Not only is she a midwife, she was also the manager for Kiri Kiri Under Eleven's rugby team, and all of their jerseys are in there. The cones are in there. There's rugby balls. There's and I'm just ripping shit out of the way to try and find this green bag. <laughs> and I find this green bag. I come back and she said, what took you so long? And I was like, I could have cut this two minutes alone ago. And all she did was like literally slid the scissors right in where I kind of had already thought I would. And she cut it. And then I said, what now? And she said, just drive. I said, your car's open and it's raining. She said, I don't care. Just drive. And she was kneeling in the, the well of the car in front of Kayleen. Kaylin was laid back. Shaw was out. This is where I realised um, um, we had a boy, um, but he wasn't moving. He was purple. Like he was, he was like breathing or crying. No, 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 no nothing. Oh. So it was in, it was it was pretty full on. I didn't feel like she, I was like she, she turned the heater up. She said, "Turn the heater on to full and drive." So I turned the heater on to full. And I was driving in this driving rain. She said, "Get to the hospital as fast as you can." And she picked up the phone and she rang ahead to the hospital and I was watching her hand trembling and she was like, we've got a baby not breathing. And I was like, and I could see she was panicked. Mm. Like she was, the, and, and this is a midwife, you know, the most together, awesome people that do this awesome job. And I could see her panicking. I was like, shit, he's dead. Mm. No, he's dead. And then we get to the corner and I'm going way too fast to the corner because I'm looking at him going, oh shit, dead baby. Car crosses up. Um, and it, she kind of loses grip of him. She, she was whacking him. Like she was slapping him on the back, like hard to try and get him to breathe. He kind of squirts out and hits his head on the roof and starts crying. He's alive. Uh, yeah. And every time I drive that stretch of road, it's like a kilometer. And for that whole kilometer, there was no noise, no movement, nothing. Not until we got to the corner and I ended up on the wrong side of the road and the midwife kind of lost grip while she was trying to whack him and he bounced his head off the roof and started screaming and, um, yeah, he carried on crying, crying for the next four years. Oh, just like his dad. <laughs> <laughs> um, fuck, that's terrifying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Jeez. Yeah, yeah. My man, 
mostly when I talk about these moments, it's like in a comedic, because it is crazy. Like, and yeah. when everything works out good, you can joke about yeah. that, that sort of shit. But I suppose no, it's the nature of a, a platform like podcasts where you get yeah. to go back and reflect and go back in a, a yeah. detail. It's a lot, man. It's yeah, a lot well, to do well it's, it's not. A, I mean, I've, I've told that story that many times to a, um, you know, whether it's a public speak, a speaking gig yeah. or um, a, in an interview, but it's a soundbite, you know, mm. it's a soundbite. You're not, you're not actually taking yourself back. It's a hell of a story. Matt Watson, a great New Zealander on the Generate Summer Series. Next up, Shaz Dag. Shaz is the first amputee to complete the coast-to-coast. She made the decision to have her arm amputated after it got badly disfigured in a freak farm accident. This was a special moment where she admitted for the first time that she's proud of herself. It's a good story. I'm in sort of I'm in sort of two minds about it because it's um you know had you had you after the accident had you left the arm which was useless yep. and ornamental for all intended yep. purpose you wouldn't have had the pain that you're in now. Possibly not, but that but we don't know that pain could have eventuated yeah to a higher intensity as it went on as well, Dom. So I don't know. It's that what if, mm. um, but. Why wait for that? What if you don't know? So you know, like I said, move on. Mm. Cut the bugger off. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and you did. You definitely did. And when you when you stand in front of the mirror now, like you, you like what you see, Absolutely. you love the new chassis. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, mm. yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm still me. Yeah. You know, um, I haven't changed. Or well, even new and improved. I mean, the things you're doing now, so. yeah. like you never did it before. Uh, I'm a better person. I honestly believe I'm a better person. Yeah. Do uh, you? Yep. Yeah, I really do. I really do think I'm a better person. I mean, physically you're fitter, but what do you mean better though? Uh, mentally. Yeah. I mean, I was never mentally um, unwell, but I just feel like mentally I've got stronger, um, more resilient. mm um, but I never really thought about that, but it's just, yeah, I, I'm a better me. Totally. Um, I feel a better person. Mm. I love who I am. And I, I believe you when you say you wouldn't, you wouldn't change it. No, I would never turn the clock back. How good. If that accident had never happened with the, the, the gate and the goats. Mate, I wouldn't be who I am what, today. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think your life would look like now? Have you ever paused to reflect just, on that? Just. Just going through the motions. Yeah. I'd just be a normal person like you. How bloody boring, right? <laughs> <laughs> so boring. Well, there's a lot. There's a line from a movie I really like, um, Shawshank Redemption. Oh yes. Um, the line yep. is like, "Get busy living or get busy dying." Yep. Uh, I suppose, like, and I, I don't say this in a mean way. I'm probably busy dying, and probably 99 percent of people are. Like, you're just going through going, going through, through the life. motion. Yeah. And I suppose now you're getting getting busy living. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I am. I, I'm really living now. Yeah. I'm living, I'm loving my living, I'm loving my life. I love who I am. Um, I'm proud of myself. Yeah. Could I'm, you say that beforehand? Nope. I can sit here now and, yeah, it's the first time I've probably even said that, Dom. You know, Jesus, you're a prick. You're really making me open <laughs> I've done up, nothing. You? I've done nothing. You know, um, yeah, yeah I, yeah, I can honestly say I'm proud of myself and yeah. that's the first time I've said that. Shaz Dag on the Generate the Summer Series. Next up, Between Two Beers podcast buddies, Steve and Seamus. They chat about their own relationship with vulnerability. This was a very special moment and the sort of conversation that guys should be able to have with each other, but definitely don't have often enough. Have a listen. I think when we started, I would have been quite stoic and afraid to show emotion. Um, And things just get me now. Because we've been doing this journey together, 
me and Shay, best friends who started this thing in my garage and now we're on this sort of epic wave and we're not really sure where it's going. There are moments where we reflect on, you know, difficult times for us, which get me as well. And there'll be time like... What do you mean? Have you got an example? uh, Yeah, Guy and Espina came on our show and um, really weird dynamic because... Our show is Between Two Beers, and it's sponsored by Export Gold. Guyon was on to promote his book about how much <laughs> yeah, better his life has been called the drinking since, game. <laughs> since he stopped giving up alcohol. And Seamus has been uh, off the booze for about two years now. And towards the second half of the episode, uh, Shay started sort of talking about his experience with booze. And Shay, I don't want to speak on your behalf. Go for it, man. But... Um, <laughs> Is it the cheeseburger story again? Yeah, Shay, Shay is in probably having the best year of his life. Like he is smashing it on all fronts. And I remember we might have started the pod. It might have been early days. Um, he was not in a great place. Like struggling. Hmm. <laughs> Sorry, man. Go for it. And yeah, as you can see, when I think about how far he's come and how difficult those conversations were. Mm. That gets me. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's been really good in terms of making making sense of the world for me. Um, it's given me um, a voice where sometimes a lot of maybe what I was thinking or things that were rattling around in my head, they wouldn't come out and they'd bottle them in. And my way of – Coping was to turn to the bottle and it was to, to drink and to suppress, to suppress those emotions and, ma- and maybe not deal with them. Um, and you get courage from other people having the courage to share their story and it gives you a little flicker of, oh, I, I felt like that or I've been mm. in that position. And I think with the podcast, you've got to give to get and I think – Yeah, it's like a vulnerability exchange, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, but not in a, not in a fucking um, – like you drink seven up and I drink eight up, you know what I mean? Like it's it's not about like who's had a shitter experience, but it's about it's about it's about I guess showing showing who you are and showing that you understand. Yeah, you have, you have yeah. a level of empathy, and yeah, it has been like in terms of 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 that situation. Yeah, I was in the the darkest depths that I I had been. Oh um, yeah, why? What, what, what um? Oh, was there any sort of like catalyst? I think probably I was looking around in like comparison as a thief of joy or whatever, however mm. that, whatever that saying goes. And I was sort of mid late thirties, no relationship. I was living at home with my mum, which is totally fine, but you're Duncan Garner. If you're listening to this, it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, like life is a shared experience as well. So, you know, it, I'd, I'd love my mum dearly. Um, and I love spending mm. time with her, but there, there is an element of joy that was probably missing. So, while I was able to do some cool things and travel around and, and have exciting experiences, you want to share those with people, right? You want to share yeah. them that aren't just your family. So there was probably a little bit of sadness and probably a little bit of um, avoidance in that, in that kind of time of my life. And, um, yeah, they were probably all coming home to roost. I was, yeah, feeling a bit sorry for myself being, like I said, that age, no house, no kind of assets, not that they're be all and end all, but in my mind. It was, yeah, it was where it was. So it was, yeah, a little bit of courage and I'd like to say a little bit of nous or a sense from, from Stephen that something was up and then we had a really, you know, challenging conversation at a cafe with another one of our good friends, a good supporter of the podcast, Gav Douglas, around 
what's going on and, and, you know, have you thought about doing anything silly? And I had at that stage thought about, you know, maybe the world would be a better place if I kind of wasn't around in it. And, yeah, it's a hard conversation to have with a mate. It's a hard conversation to mm. to have on a microphone and it's a confronting one to throw it out to the world for them to kind of consume and the shame and, and fear of judgment and mm. what that means for you as a person. But the overwhelming response to anything that I think either of us have ever thrown out there has been one of aroha and one of love coming mm. back yeah, and, for sure. and understanding and acceptance of, of those things. So that's a really powerful um, foundation to kind of launch mm. from. And yeah, I am having a, a great year. It's mm. going, it's going, <laughs> it's going, it's going really good. Stephen Seamus from the Between Two Beers podcast on the Generate the Summer series. Next up, Gilda Kirkpatrick. She talked about her reputation as a gold digger and how she ended up in a relationship, then a marriage, with a man 40 years older than herself. Generally, I just wouldn't gel with young New Zealand men. It's just they had a whole different sheltered life and none of them really understood, you know, like I couldn't talk to them about politics. I wouldn't talk to them about like, uh, well, in the international stuff or, you know, a whole bunch of experiences that I had. I hardly could find anybody who had, you know, you could talk to them and they will sit there and look at you like, what the fuck? And that was it, you know. Um, <laughs> you're, yeah, as I said at the beginning of this, I, like, I find you very intimidating because you're very intellectual. Yeah, no, you're very smart. No, no, it's not about that, but it, it's, it's, it's like it, I've lived a life, you know. So when I met my ex-husband, he had been a young immigrant to New Zealand. You know, he started from nothing. He um, came from a very conflicted, Place, you know, um, his parents were Irish, so his mom was orange and his dad was, his mom was green and his dad was orange. and no go. So his family, his father's family tried, his mother's family tried, you know, her father's family tried to shoot his father because, you know, um, it was, it was a sacrilege to mix Protestant and Catholic. Mm. Um, so they had to move and go and live elsewhere. And so he understood. And, and then when he was a child, his father went to war. He understood the concept of war. He was a young immigrant. You know, he went through a lot of stuff emotionally that I went through in different settings, in different time zones, mm. but the same experiences, you know. Uh, coming here at very young age on his own, you know, jumping ship. Um, so him and I really gelled and connected, mm. you know, although there, there was, you know, he was much older than me, but it, it, it just worked. We were like, whoa, you know, um, we get each other. And mm. that to me was my digging gold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this is, um, this is your, you, you, are you still legally married? You, you broke I up. Don't know. We, you we divorced. divorced because um, it, it was actually amicable. Um, at the time, like for a couple of years, we were discussing that I was like, Oh, you know, I think I'm going to want to have children so we can adopt or, you know, um, get a donor, etc. And he was firmly against that. And he, told me that because he because he already had adult kids or yeah. he just yeah, didn't he want to do like, it again oh, it's, it's, yeah and i was like fine and so anyway it took kind of a couple of years and um we were like even when i had my first child we were still living together you know hmm. uh, so it was we were very open about the process yeah. what happened um and uh, we are still best friends i see him you know 
couple of times a week. Um, yeah, so this is um, this is uh, James Kirkpatrick, who's yes. um, forty three years old. So he's how old now? Like ninety three. Yeah, ninety three. So so when you when you got together, you were twenty six. I think twenty six, and so he was twenty forty like early seventies. No, I think six and nine right. or something. Yeah. Right, and um, you just like attracted, just attracted to the intellect. Yeah, or it, yeah, it, it was that. It, it was that we just, um, you know, had so much to talk about, and he was so charming. You know, um, we had lots of com- fr- uh, friends in common. That's mm. how I met him, and he originally. Told me and my sister that he wanted he was doing some project in um, Otahu, I think, or something, mm-hmm. and he wanted our um, help because at the time, um, you know, we studied architecture, so um, and that was his. You know, he was a developer, and um, then he gave a project, I think, to do his offices or something like that. So it was kind of a gradual thing, mm-hmm. and, so I, and he just. One time, out of the blue, he was like, "Oh, you know, introduce me to some like some of his friends as my fiance." And I was like, "What the?" You know, like <laughs> it was just funny. It was, yeah, yeah. you know, and it kind of was like, "Oh, well, why not?" You know, it wasn't like a passionate thing, it, it like a just, slow burn where you just sort of got on really well. And it, it was, yeah, but it was never about, um, you know, lost and it wasn't. It, our friendship, it was full of respect mm. our age difference was a lot uh, he was going through some stuff at the time and um it, it just worked it was more like a um great friendship that got the marriage stamp on mm. it yeah so it was a great friendship and you connected on an intellectual level but it must have been nice to know he was rich as well <laughs> you know it was yeah. it was the fact that he had managed to do so many um terrible jobs and you know live in such poverty yet get himself there um that was so admirable gilda on the generate summer series now karen Berger, silver fern legend she joined me on the podcast the morning after a very special game it was her 50th test match for new zealand we opened our podcast by touching upon that epic milestone you and i have been going backwards and forwards we set this up maybe a month ago six weeks ago and I assumed that you were going to be an Auckland for netball, but I, I had no idea the significance of the game. So yesterday afternoon, it was um, New Zealand versus Australia, and you guys won. Congratulations. And it was your it was a milestone game. It was your 50th game. Yeah. As a silver fern. And at, at the end, there was a presentation with a big bunch of flowers and yeah. uh, uh, massive highlights we were playing on the, on the video screen. And here you are the morning after. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it's been a massive couple of months for us, actually. To be honest, a year. Um, heaps of netball. So... It's just good to have finished on a high like that last night. Unfortunately, we didn't come away with the cup because of the goal differentials, but to be able to win the last couple of games against Aussie was amazing. And I wasn't aware of the milestone and that it was happening. So um, I pretty much found out when I arrived at the game. How are you not aware? Um, well, you know, I 
like we don't track how many games we play. Like we get told, oh great, you've played so many games. So um, I knew it was coming up at some point because of the filming that they'd done prior. So I just didn't know when it was going to happen. To be honest, I actually thought I missed it this year. Um, and I think I was watching the men's game before hours and one of the um, camera people came up to me and was like, oh, congratulations. I was like, oh, on what? <laughs> um, so yeah, that's pretty much when I found out. But it's good to not know because that just adds a bit of extra pressure on you that you don't need need you know celebrations and surprise afterwards quite nice yeah but it must be a nice time to i don't know maybe take a moment to pause and reflect on where you've come from because i i I mean i before i started researching for this chat i i thought i knew the karen burger story i I thought (laughs) talented netballer maybe got shoulder tapped to come to new zealand and sort of develop here but the the actual story is quite different, and we'll, we'll get into this, but you moved here when you were 18. You weren't on anyone's radar when it came to, like, high-performance sport. Yeah. And you just, like, grind and grafted <laughs> away for many years. Yeah. Um, I think people quite often ask me, like, why did you make – like, what made you make the big move? Um, And at that point, like, when you're 18, you just want to go do something. You want to have fun. Like, any adventure is a good adventure. So – Mum mentioned that she had family here. I was actually here at Aussie. Um, Dad had a best friend over there or mum had family here, which I hadn't met at that point. Um, but I thought, yeah, why not? And I just came for a holiday for a gap year and that <laughs> turned into 12 years. Um, and I think the netball was a good driving force for me to want to keep to stay. Um, but I also started building a life outside of that. And I think that's what helped with that grind. Uh, didn't take, uh, well, took me up to seven years before I actually pulled on that black mm. dress. So, um, and again, people ask me how, how you lasted that long or how you kept grinding. But if you've got stuff, other stuff that you can focus on and also not have all your eggs in one basket, that's just a part of your life. Silver Fern, Kardenberger. Next up, Nigel Beach. Nigel is a physiotherapist from Mount Monganui. He's also a good mate and follower of Wim Hof's breathing and cold exposure methods. In this snippet, we discuss his friendship with Wim. He is a remarkable man who has a technique called the Wim Hof method, which utilizes breathing techniques and gradual, non-forced exposure to cold. Mm, An awful, awful backstory, right, with his yeah. with his wife. Yeah, and when you think about why. Why did Wim get into this? Well, his wife committed suicide and he was left with five, four children between the age of five and 11 to bring up. So his real mission, he wanted to end depression. So she had depression and uh, she committed suicide. And, you know, he had his own grief to go through as well. So that was his very noble cause for seeking out how to help the world. And he's just a massive, like, his spirit is phenomenal. If you could watch a documentary on him, I think, and if it was just one, I would say the Goop Lab. No, I would agree with Gwyneth yeah. Paltrow. You've seen that? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a good bite-sized entry into yes. the world of Wim Hof. Yeah, and it comes from a bit more of a feminine angle rather yeah. than some of the, you know, people that are, he was on Joe Rogan's podcast. So then you got a lot of macho male men attracted to his techniques and methods, and they were sort of telling the story from the, ah. Oh. But I think uh, Gwyneth showed brings it down to more of that more feminine um, style, mm. which I really like. You're not just a student of his, though. You, you and him are sort of like mates, right? Yeah. He stays at your house. and Yeah. So we're very good friends, good confidants. Um, yeah, massive how did, respect. How did, how did that happen? Um, so that study was in 2013. Um, so, so then I read that study. I was blown away, and I was like, this is going to help my population of clients. I have to – 
seek this guy out and learn more from him. And he happened to be coming down to Australia to do a week-long live-in retreat. So I went over there um, to try and learn more about his methods. It was an amazing group of people. There were 30 of us there. This would never happen now. There'd be probably 500 people there, and yeah, you'd probably yeah. get an instructor of WIMS. But there were 30 people there, and we're still really tight to this day, that group of people. And there was no one there really going to learn about his methods to deploy it in a clinical setting. It was more people, they had Lyme disease, uh, major depressive disorder, um, all manners of, you know, there was pain. It was like, wow, this is amazing. But all of these people were sort of seeking out that top 2%. You know, these were real successful people in business, but they might have been suffering with burnout or successful people in um, whatever they were trying to do in life. Um, yeah, so amazing group of people. So I went and had a week with them, um, just connected. Um, and yeah, we became really good friends. I help him. I helped him articulate some of the science that I was seeing from what I thought was occurring during the Wim Hof method. Then he came and stayed, yeah, with the family. And uh, my little boy's middle name is Wim. So wow, yeah. So there's a connection there, named after Wim. That wasn't my choice. That was my wife's. You, you do a you do a great impression of him. You um, <laughs> I, I don't know if, I don't know if you want to share this on the maybe this is a private thing, but uh, uh, when I stayed with you, we walked up uh, Mount Monganui and you were bare feet, and you you did an impression of Wim walking up uh, Mount Monganui chatting to strangers on the way. Oh yeah, yeah, because it was amazing. Because Wim was staying and we we're going up the mount, and you know it was always a bit of a bugbear of mine when you go up the mount that people wouldn't say hello, mm. and. Um, you know, I like saying hello to people. You're, you're you're both out there doing the same thing at the same time, and it's kind of a cool connection. I yeah. agree. I'm like that with running. It is. I wave at everybody. And Wim just wouldn't say hello, mate. He goes, hey, man. Hey, how are you going? Good on you, man. Keep it going. We go on. You go. And it was, these people were just getting bursts of enthusiasm from... This weird, barefoot, yeah. Jesus-looking guy. They didn't know who he was. <laughs> yeah, so... Yeah, it was great stuff. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You told me another story about um, most people had no idea who he was or yeah. they didn't acknowledge him. And then there was some guy at the top that uh, said, oh, my God, you're Wim off. You changed my life yeah, sort of thing. That's yeah. so cool. And I've been with Wim so many times now. Jess and I went and saw him, um, had a week with him in Australia a couple of months ago. And he's so, so full of life, mate. But he practices what he preaches. He gets up in the morning and he does, does the stuff. Um, but when you're out with him in public now, like especially in Australia – People come up to him and say, you saved my life. One guy jumped through a restaurant window. Wim and I were having dinner. He jumped in through the restaurant window and hugged him and said how he saved his life. So, And that just happens so often, mate. Yeah. Amazing. And he travels only with um, like carry-on, right? Like, yeah. Um... He turned up at my house. I had to give him a pair of shoes. Um, <laughs> yeah, and he had a just a backpack, which was half full. He had nothing in there. So, um, mate, he's, he's the gypsy traveller. Yeah. Nigel Beach on the Generate Summer Series. Next up, Healthy Kelsey. She's blown up and become famous for her food. She is now a twice-published author and has a massive social media following. And this is how the brand Healthy Kelsey was born. So it started as like a hobby during lockdown. Um, at what point do you go, you know what, this could this could be my thing? Yeah, I... I actually, from the beginning, I think it was actually when, but the thing is when I signed to write the books, like books, you actually don't make make money off cookbooks, like a little bit, but you're not making enough, you know, to I've, I've, live your life. I've, I've, written, um, I've written three books. Yeah. Um, 
and uh, yeah, the the, the adva- you get a horrible little advance, yeah. and then uh, you have to you spend months and two months two years writing, writing something, yeah. and you get like it's the worst hourly yeah, rate. It's not. Yeah, my, my publishers told me they've got a theory that um um cookbooks and sports books are the two that sell the most. Uh, cookbooks um get sold and used. Um, sports books get um, sold, given as presents and never read. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or put on, like, the coffee table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah Dad, here's a Richie McCaw book. Yeah. Like, cool. Sorry. Yeah, we'll look at some photos. Yeah. So was was that sort of the moment where you thought, oh, this could be, yeah. yeah. I was kind of like, well, it's going to be, like, in Whitcalls. That's going to be cool. And I kind of thought it was going to change way my life way more than it did at the time. You know, like, sometimes you think – I don't know, you work towards something and you think this one moment and then you'll be good. Like mm. I th- It was like that with getting 10,000 Instagram followers. I was like, I just want 10,000. So for mm. a whole year I was like, I just want 10,000. Then I get to 10,000, I'm like, okay, my, nothing has nothing changed. Actually changes. I'm yeah, actually not rises, that much happier. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it's fine. It's, it's funny that, eh? I think um, that must just be the human psyche. Like you're, you're, Everyone wants to have that moment that you think is going to bring you exponential growth. Yeah, it's people, like, people do it with money, point. people do it with everything, I think. And it's... a it, I think it takes you realizing a goal like that, and mm. I'm, then I'm going to be happy and reaching it and being like, "Huh." I mean, no, it's like when you when really you doing... reach the top of the mountain, you got to just climb another mountain. Yeah, mountain exactly. Which is the the cool part of it, I think. Yeah, always having swimming actually feel like has taught me a lot of that. Is that you can set goals, swimming, you set goals, you know, and you train and you train and you train, and then you're not going to reach them for two years. So you are doing this thing that's so hard, and but you're not actually going to reach your goal for another two years. So I think... It's delayed gratification. It's quite, yeah, which I think is quite a rare thing to have of being like, so if I do this now, in two years, this is going to be epic. Like, Oh, yeah, patience. No one's a, got that patience yeah, anymore. That is, a, yeah, that is a really good takeaway from I think, those years Yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's Sorry true. for saying takeaway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm kind of like, I maybe shouldn't have used that word. Oh, that's but a stuck. Yeah, exactly. That's what I think. It's just fun. But, like, actually, like, healthy is in a balanced thing. Like, you've got to have hot chips and you've got to have all these things, I think, to be healthy, you know, in my brain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it makes sense. Okay, so so the Instagram starts growing, you have the book deal, th- then what? Um, that, th- that was when I went to Bali, actually. Right. Yeah, so we... As soon as the borders open again, you're gone. Can't, actually, the borders didn't really open. They were kind of... Other countries were, but not us. So I was kind of like, oh, if we can go... So we did the two weeks quarantine when we came home here. I was like, if we can, I just was so desperate to go somewhere. Like, I was like, I just need a change of environment. I need, and I was like, if we can't travel, travel. Like, let's just go live somewhere a bit different. Like, I, I love Bali. We've grown up going to Indonesia a lot um, as kids. And I was just like, I feel like I really need to just do something different. So we did it. And it was actually so funny. Like, for so I, I feel like I traveled quite a bit as like a teenager and, that it was actually quite nerve-wracking going on the plane, I think, because of the whole COVID thing. It was like, oh, my gosh, this is scary. And then we had to do quarantine when we got to Indonesia. Once we got to Bali, it was just epic. We had the best time. And then coming home, we did the two weeks here, Um, and that's when my book actually was released. 
Yeah. So you yeah. So two weeks quarantine when you got to Bali. We're just in a hotel there. Or in Jakarta, actually. Yeah, yeah, just in a hotel. How did you find that? You would you? I feel like you're the sort of person that would have been good at keeping busy. You're not just like yeah. binge watching Netflix we shows. Did quite, well, see, we thought we were going to be those people. We were like, okay, let's get up and we'll do workout and then we got our little outside time we were like sick and then we would like do some work and then it would probably be like 11 and we're like oh no (laughs) thanks so much for listening to this episode of the generate kiwi saver scheme summer series full disclosure It takes a fair amount of work to put these episodes together, so I genuinely appreciate you listening right through, and I sincerely hope you enjoyed it. If you ever want to get hold of me for any feedback, guest suggestions, anything else, I'm domharveynz on Instagram, or you can email me, domharveynz at gmail.com. And if you don't do so already, please hit the subscribe or auto-download button on your podcast app so you won't ever miss an episode of the show. 2023 has been epic, but 2024 is, I hope, going to be even bigger. Guests in early 2024 include the star of Virgin River on Netflix, Martin Henderson, Warriors coach Andrew Webster, and Steve Williams, the caddy who worked with Tiger Woods at the absolute peak of his powers. It truly is going to be a cracker of a year as the podcast continues to grow. Just before I sign off, big thanks to the absolute weapons at the Generate Kiwi Saver Scheme. I'm a fan of the Generate team and I can't speak highly enough about the job they do for their clients. Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of chart-topping long-term performance. If you want to make sure you're making the most of your KiwiSaver account, talk to an advisor. Head to generatekiwisaver.co.nz forward slash get advice. That's generatekiwisaver.co.nz forward slash get advice. A copy of their product disclosure statement can be found there too. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited. And of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. All right, thanks so much. And I do hope to see you next week on the Dom Harvey Podcast. See ya. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.